The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Will Davies. We spoke about whether or not the coronavirus crisis heralds the break with neoliberal capitalism that many expected in the wake of the financial crisis, why the Anglo-American response to the COVID-19 pandemic seems to differ from the response seen in mainland Europe and in East Asia, and we also talked about how the media has covered the government's approach to the crisis. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. New patrons can also sign up for free and discounted subscriptions to Tribune magazine and a free copy of Bhaskar Sankara's The Socialist Manifesto. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of titles that might be of interest to listeners. This year marks Verso's 50th anniversary, which they are celebrating throughout the year with reissues of classic radical texts and exciting new voices that hold capitalism and imperialism to account. For nearly 15 years, they've been publishing beautifully designed important works of theory and philosophy in their Radical Thinkers series. And to celebrate the start of their 50th year, they've republished five of their most significant and widely read radical thinkers with stunning new cover design. Those titles are Nancy Fraser's Fortunes of Feminism, Theodore Adorno's Minima Moralia, Louis Althusser's On Ideology, Chantal Mousse's The Return of the Political, and Jean Baudrillard's The System of Objects. Visit versobooks.com for more information. Will Davies is reader in political economy at Goldsmiths, part of the University of London. His latest book is Nervous States, How Feeling Took Over the World, which we discussed in episodes 24 and 27. So in recent days, we've heard a lot of talk about how we're all socialists now, we're all Corbynites now, because of the radical state intervention that is happening in the economy in order to try and somewhat reduce the impact of what looks certain to be a a global recession and possibly a depression. But in your recent London Review of Books article, you write with reference to the French sociologist Emile Durkheim that we are all Durkheimians now. Could you say something about Durkheim and and, and what you were getting out there? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the phrase we're all Durkheimians now is a kind of um, twist on the famous Richard Nixon line. We're all Keynesians now. Um, But um, I mean, what I was alluding to was the fact that uh, after decades of uh, neoliberal reforms and uh, I suppose the, the triumph of a, of a neoliberal ideology which had dismissed famously in the words of Margaret Thatcher the very idea of society that suddenly there is a, a, a an embrace of a, uh, of a of a worldview which is concerned with aggregates and averages 
as revealing some sort of truth about society. And society understood in the way that Emile Durkheim, the, the great French pioneer of sociology in the late 19th century, believed that society was what he called a social fact, um, that there were aspects of societies, um, and in, in many ways this is a, a proxy for not nations as such, but certainly uh, the populations that live in nation states, um, but that there were aspects of, of, of societies that impact upon us as individuals in ways that can't simply be reduced to economics or to psychology, and that each society has uh, certain forces within it, certain trends within it, which steers everyone in one path rather than another. Now, what I meant when I wrote that in the in the LRB article was that um, certainly for those of us who uh, have become addicted to, uh, or even more addicted to um, online media and social media, yeah, there is now more this, or less this, all of this, us. Well, exactly. I mean, uh, but there is now this this fascination, uh, or, or sort of a very anxious fascination, a slightly sort of um, morbid fascination in studying uh, these aggregate trends that uh, different uh, societies are following. There's the the now quite famous uh, data graphic that is produced by the FT every day, showing different nations on these different trajectories of mortality rates and infection rates. Um, and, you know, how many weeks are we behind Italy and this sort of thing? And, you know, why is South Korea's curve quite so much flatter than all the others? Why is Britain suddenly taking off at a different rate from Germany's and so on? So I think that there's, that there's, a, there's this in some ways, one of the kind of things that we turn to in, in search of some sense of reality has suddenly become this this uh, quite sociological view. In some ways, actually, if you wanted to have the more recent example of that as a as, as an epistemology or as a, as a as a political worldview, the book The Spirit Level, which came out in 2009, before people were talking about Thomas Piketty, um, The Spirit Level was a book written about the consequences of inequality for societies understood as aggregates of population. So the book shows that societies with high levels of inequality also have uh, high levels of, uh, of, 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 of mental distress or high levels of anxiety amongst children or all these other types of indicators. And the other interesting thing I think about the spirit level in, in, in this context is that the authors of it, um, they're actually not sociologists, they're social epidemiologists. Um, and so they are sort of looking at at, at aggregates in terms of how different types of health effect and uh, mental health effect kind of cluster in different ways by looking at a society as uh, in terms of its averages. And Durkheim believed that the averages told us a great deal about what binds us together as, as a people. And in terms of those statistics, you know, by, by the various um, countries that have been badly hit by coronavirus, I mean, do you think they tell a, a fairly straightforward story, a, a story of the Anglo-American model, for, for example, being much mm. less resilient in this particular situation as compared with European social democratic societies and, and particularly East Asia, although obviously China and South Korea are, are radically different in many respects? Well, I, I mean, the, you know, we're, unfortunately, we're, we, we will find out. I mean, we know that different governments have taken different decisions at different points in these um, horrific curves. Um, and there's been ample discussion as to whether Britain's uh, government has taken decisions too late in certain respects and that it hasn't uh, learnt lessons and it hasn't spotted the warnings that have been coming from uh, from Italy in particular. Um, 
I think that I suppose the the sociological question would be whether um, you know because sociologists aren't just interested in 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 public policy. I mean that when Durkheim was was writing about suicide, which was one of his great case studies, I mean he was looking also at the effects of different uh, religious um, uh, constraints on different societies and different levels of solidarity and different forms of cohesion and so on. Now it may be. That, that societies which have high levels of solidarity are able to, and it, I mean, one would expect, are able to weather this kind of disaster better in terms of their ability to actually respect uh, widespread social norms, to sustain forms of mutual aid and, and, and social reciprocity in ways that doesn't put uh, very large numbers of people at risk by being channeled via the labour market the entire time. It may be that all sorts of these sorts of questions will no doubt be studied. Um, no doubt sociologists will look back upon this disaster in years to come in an effort to try and work out what were the other factors involved in how different societies managed to navigate this period uh, better than others. Because after all, it's not just about public policy. I mean, we do know that um, different societies have different numbers of intensive care units, uh, you know, different numbers of, of, of critical care beds per head of the population. And we know that, that Britain's is unusually low. And so obviously that is a, 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 a public policy decision and a decision taken about calculations of, of, of social risk. Um, but the I suppose the broader sociological question extends beyond the state and public policy. But nevertheless, I mean, I think that at the moment, there is this now sort of, as I say, a, a kind of uh, rather terrified fixation on these different uh, percentages and, uh, uh, and, and rates of change. I think the paragraph I was most struck by in the LRB article was where you suggested, I think, that there's a certain kind of horrifying realism to the government's response. I mean, obviously, from the outside, uh, the way the government has, has responded looks, you know, uh, foot dragging, uh, you know, criminally negligent, really, in terms of the mm. risk it's, it's, it's um, exposing the public too. But the point you make is that it's perhaps possible that the government recognises that 30 years of neoliberal counter-revolution has, has meant that the UK is unusually unable to deal with, with a situation like a, like a, a full lockdown yeah. as compared to, to somewhere like China, for instance. Well, sure. I think that um, public policy, particularly in Britain, and this has been pointed out by, by some people, has been dominated by a Benthamite utilitarian philosophy for a long time. Um, this is what Treasury wonks are trained to to do: is to do cost benefit analysis. The rise of of things like the nudge unit, which uh, has provoked lots of discussion in the course of this crisis as well. This is also a sits within a, a, a dogmatically Benthamite worldview, which is that what we can do is to push people towards the courses of action which will have. Uh, the greatest social benefit for the for the least cost. Now, I guess if you were to take a, a, an entirely um, mathematical instrumentalist view of a crisis like this, the hit to GDP and the hit to collective prosperity will also have some pretty dire consequences for uh, for, for our health and well-being. I mean, um, in all sorts of ways. Now, 
I'm not saying that there is anyone in the government who is trying to do some sort of cost-benefit analysis of how many deaths uh, should we be prepared to tolerate in exchange for keeping the economy ticking over to this extent. But I do think that perhaps there is something about in the uh, in the psyche of the the British policy technocrat, which uh, tries to, in some sense, stand above the, dis- the sort of separate disciplines of economics and and epidemiology and, and health and instead tries to sort of weigh up different forms of cost and benefit uh, in ways that is perhaps more um, uh, uh, sort of amenable to, to, to sustaining the, the health of, of, of certain economic institutions rather than to simply go into out and out kind of emergency management, which is now what's happened. But I think there was a there was for a while, and this is where that whole notion of herd immunity and all these sorts of things, which provoked so much controversy, came in. There was for a while an idea that we can sort of, you know, our, our existing utilitarian policy frameworks and concepts can accommodate this. And that can come across as somewhat sort of nihilistic and uh, 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 and rather sort of even misanthropic potentially. But I think that that's one part of the story. I think the other the other aspect of it is that it's true that I think that very early on uh, certain experts advising the government, particularly those probably in and around the the nudge unit, were thinking very quickly about. Um, Things like you know the 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 behavioural aspects of of a lockdown and the behavioural aspects of uh, of a sort of closing down of the labour market and so on, at a time when I think that it was almost sort of trying to act in that kind of anticipating problems months ahead of time. And they were also thinking about, you know, the second spike of an epidemic um, coinciding with the winter flu crisis, uh, winter, winter flu spike and the the, the NHS, uh, the demand on the NHS in the winter. So they were sort of doing all of this sort of uh, very sort of clever, uh, quite sort of abstract mathematical view of the situation. Um, but while it was unfolding at huge speed, so it might not be that they were wrong about some of these sorts of things, but there was a sort of, I think, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, at a time when 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 people wanted action, they were taking this uh, sort of uber Benthamite view of ha- you know what is going to produce the greatest welfare over a sort of two year period. And uh, I mean, obviously, the government would defend itself by saying, you yeah, know, we were simply following the advice of our scientific advisors. And it seems that in, in the way in which even critics from the left are looking at this, there's a sense that there are uh, good advisors and bad advisors. You know, we're, we're highly suspicious of the nudge unit and, and, and behavioral psychologists. But we tend to think that the epidemiologists and other, and other and virologists and other experts in that field uh, are, are disinterested and just acting in, in, in the public interest. But do you think that's something we might want to question as well? And and maybe some of the uh, some of the scientific advisors themselves may uh, have acquired a kind of u- utilitarianism, and it's been interesting in that respect, I suppose, to hear talk of, of British science as this kind of distinct uh, form of science that is perhaps different from science on on the continent, for instance. Well, I mean, I think what it seems to me that in some respects, clearly the the the, the experts that were advising the government seem to be quite insulated from dissenting voices for quite a long time. I mean, and, and, and many people will have seen the sorts of things that The Lancet was writing and Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet, has been on a kind of, kind of you know, campaign for some weeks to try and get the government to change course and, and has contributed to that happening, no doubt, but but much later than, than he and, and others would have liked. So there's a certain sort of um, insulation of this sort of, Benthamite technocratic elite from um, from from the broader public sphere in some ways, 
And I think that there is a, a, a different form of expertise or a different way of understanding what good public policy looks like, which is much more about comparison and learning from what has happened elsewhere. And this was seemed to be precisely what uh, the British government refused to countenance for some time, was to actually go and try and learn from, from what happened in, in China, uh, what was working successfully in South Korea, and uh, some of the the, the, the disaster that was that was uh, happening in northern Italy. I mean, there's a kind of you know I'm just thinking of a, of a comparison to to the financial crisis. I remember Carell Williams, who was the um, director of the Cresc Centre um, for uh, several years, um, which I think is now more or less um, uh, ended, but as a research centre based at the University of Manchester. He I mean he 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 always posed the the analogy. Um, with respect to financial disasters, which was, well, they should be treated like plane crashes. And what happens when a plane crashes is that all sorts of people go over the debris, they find the black box, they try and work out exactly what's happened, and they build up a picture of a, of a, of a, of a disaster so that people can learn from it in future. What they don't do is sort of try and build sort of abstract models of how planes hypothetically might fall out of the sky uh, and then build safety regulations upon that. They build safety regulations upon what has actually taken place so that it doesn't happen again in the same way. Um, and equally, I think that, you know, there was a certain sort of uh, hubris, naivety, um, I, I don't know don't know what, that, that, that seemed to kind of uh, dominate uh, British the British policy approach to this problem for um, a, a fairly crucial three or four weeks through late February and early March, which didn't do the sort of, you know, plane crash investigation approach, which would have been to say, well, what, what did happen in Wuhan? Um, and what 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 has, uh, what kind of responses seem to have worked? Now, okay, it may be that we can't, in our society, uh, suddenly unfold the levels of testing and contact tracing that, that worked quite so effectively in South Korea and in Singapore. But nevertheless, you would think that there would be much more uh, sort of, I suppose, comparative policy uh, fascination while there was still time than, than turned out to be the case. Yes. I mean, I suppose Singapore is an interesting one, isn't it, given how uh, enamoured with uh, Singapore's economic system uh, some mm. of the Brexiteers are. Well, yeah. I mean, I think everyone, I mean, again, I'm only sort of repeating what I've, what I've read about this sort of stuff, but I think that, I mean, people seem to think that the experience with SARS is what, what prepared uh, uh, Southeast Asia for, to, for dealing with the crisis. And again, I think that's the, again, comes back to a sort of the plane crash investigation mentality, which is to actually be a, a, a proper empiricist about this kind of stuff and to actually try and kind of piece together a, a narrative and a version of events about what did, didn't work and and, and, and what can avoid a repeat of mistakes in the future. Um, and I think there is a certain sort of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the model building mentality is not incompatible with that, but it but it potentially um, starts to, to sideline um, uh, a, a, a sort of uh, that kind of empirical realism. So on a, on a different question, so I think like a lot of people, you know, I've, I found myself thinking about the early weeks and months of the, the 2008 financial crisis. And in that early period, there was a, an expectation right across the political spectrum, really, that the crisis perhaps spelled the end of neoliberalism and, and even of capitalism, according to, to some commentators. And we, and we saw articles in places like The Economist declaring that, that Karl Marx was back. Uh, and obviously, things panned out in a, in a radically different way and, and, and in a way that was very much to the advantage of, of capital. Do you think we might be in, in a similar situation now where the left perhaps deludes itself into thinking it's in a position to take advantage of the 
the crisis, uh, especially given the prevalence of, of right-wing nationalist governments in much of the world? Well, I mean, obviously, for starters, we've got, uh, you know, the, the the Johnson government doesn't have to call a general election for nearly five years. So mm, yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that changes things. Um, I think that, um, I suppose... The threat here is, I mean, what, you know, what did the left not anticipate in 2008-9? Well, one thing they didn't anticipate was the way in which, well, the various things happened. I mean, one was the ease with which the Conservative Party and then the coalition government was able to fairly quickly divert blame towards uh, feckless uh, welfare claimants and and uh, this sort of thing as a as an excuse for for why the financial crisis happened. You know, Labour spent all the money. This this is the that narrative took hold fairly fairly quickly and without much resistance from um, uh, by that point rather exhausted Labour government and and and, and rather sort of um, anxious Miliband leadership that came after it. I mean, it's hard. I think that that won't. You can't. I mean, what, what what's changed now is that no one believes that that people are, are are in dire straits due to their own fecklessness and their own responsibility. So, in that sense, a sort of I think a crucial moral prop of neoliberalism. Um, and 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 really, for you know, if you read a book like um, uh, Mark Blythe's Austerity: A History of a Dangerous Idea, you know that he sort of traces the whole way back to John Locke in the in you know in the at the end of the seventeenth early eighteenth century. Of of thinking of of work as as good for people and and as people without work as as being um, uh, uh, sort of idle and this sort of thing, and um, uh, so I think it, that crucial kind of liberal um, concept uh, that 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 people without work simply aren't trying hard enough, obviously is is, is currently on hold, and that means that it's going and it, I think it'd be very difficult to kind of put that argument back together again anytime particularly soon. I think what could happen though is that by the time this crisis passes whenever that might be and i think this is a obviously a very difficult thing to to um uh, understand to, to, to anticipate um and after all rishi sunak i mean he's a he comes from a hedge fund background i mean he's suddenly sort of you know being cast as kind of sort of clement attlee and lenin sort of fused into one um but i think that i mean that i think that what could happen is that the, the the restoration of normality, uh, which at some point will will be will be argued for, you know that, that this this thing is over. We now need to kind of get back to normal. In some ways, could require an even more uh, punitive version of what happened in twenty ten to twenty sixteen under the Cameron government. Uh, than than an even more punitive version of that, in the sense that you know what happened in 2008-9 was that the government suddenly showed that it was able to access uh, uh, tens or hundreds of billions of pounds that, that, that previously hadn't been available to it. And in order to move on from that from that moment of excess, there had to be a sudden clampdown upon things like um, the, the benefit system and, uh, uh, and, and public sector wages and so on. So I think that, you know, it's there is a possible precedent there. This is what I think we need to be worried about of uh, the moment of the, the kind of potlatch of Rishi Sunak announcing that the government is going to cover 80% of the private sector wage bill. Um, 
which is a sort of total kind of you know something which none of us could have envisaged. Um, uh, the, 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 how do you get out of that? Well, to get out of that back to normality will involve a level of economic rationality mixed with a form of authoritarianism, the like of which um, you know George Osborne didn't even come close to. Mm. So you, you protect people today in order to absolutely hammer them later uh, down the well, line. Well, in a sense that the that to swing back from demonstrating quite how much money is available potentially to saying that actually we haven't got any money mm. will be a much bigger journey than it was between uh, the autumn of 2008 and the spring of 2010, which is, you know, there was an 18 month period between uh, suddenly saying that there was an infinite amount of money to make this financial system survive uh, through to saying that uh, we're going to cut your benefits because you happen to have a very small spare room in your house. You know, that that, that journey happened uh, over the course of a sort of 18 month, two year period. There's going to have to be in some ways, a you know, or potentially there's, it, it, there's going to be a much bigger kind of sort of shudder if 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 the conservative government uh, wants to somehow uh, restore some some version of a of a, of a sort of market rationality at, at the end of this but of course it's not going to succeed in the way that a typical kind of Ian Duncan Smith kind of punitive neoliberal, I think, will 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 hope it to. I just I just don't I just don't think that it that it possibly can. And I think one reason why it, why it can't is that the argument that people are feckless uh, and that they deserve their poverty simply won't fly. Uh, it won't even fly. I think in the pages of the Daily Mail um, uh, or, or, or the Daily Telegraph. Um, I think. Secondly, I think there has been, and and I think that it's crucial that we make the most of this. We're going through a period where the very question of how we value things is has been thrown up into the air. And I mean, everybody grasps this at the moment in terms of, you know, who is doing something which has any kind of social value whatsoever, uh, what sorts of activities are actually worth engaging in and what what, what, is, what is just sort of, you know, stuff that we, we never needed to do in the first place and needed to purchase in the first place. So, and I think that that will leave a, a, a type of residue. I mean, I, I'm sure that the that the urge to, 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 to repair things and to get back to some normality will be very strong indeed but i think that you know i think there could be uh, an opportunity for a much bolder conversation about marginal tax rates at the top and high pay uh, and i think there will be a much more receptive uh, public to having those sorts of those sorts of discussions that thomas piketty and others have tried to develop i think there will be a much more receptive uh, public for that kind of thing and i think that you know um the sorts of intergenerational politics that that Keir Milburn and, and others have, have have written about I think will 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 come into play in in in, in quite a major way over the over the next few years in ways that I think will I, mean, I don't want to be too optimistic about this but I think that will that the progressive potential of of, of that intergenerational politics that that that, that um, Keir Milburn writes about in in generation left I think you know will will also play its part. Also, just in terms of the experience of of the lockdown and the, and this, you know, capitalism seeming to be al- almost in a pause at the moment. I mean, you know, I'm I'm, I'm in Italy at, at the moment, uh, so I've been under lockdown for a couple of couple of weeks. And, and and one of the things I've been thinking about is the quite contradictory emotional experience of that, which I think is particularly influenced by by my own politics, I, I, I suppose. In the you know, primarily there's, there's feelings of, of fear and anxiety and, and, and worry about what's happening in the north of Italy and, and watching, you know, sort of the, the slow motion car crash, which which seems to be the UK government response. But at, but at the same time, 
you know, there's a sense of, of a strange kind of excitement at seeing things grinding to a halt and, and the potential future possibilities that that raises um, and, and, and seeing that um, much production uh, can stop and, and, the, and, you know, the sky doesn't fall in immediately. Mm. And, uh, you know, we see things like, uh, for instance, in China, the, one of the consequences of the lockdown was, was an extreme reduction in air pollution. So I suppose I, I, I wonder whether, you know, we, we can imagine a situation where, strangely, we might miss certain aspects of the lockdown mm. and, and that this might feed into uh, a way in, in which there might be greater appetite for recalibrating uh, our economy. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think many of us identify with that. I mean, I think there there are different levels of of. Um, I think there are people out there who clearly are having some people. Uh, this this is quite pleasant in some ways. What's what's happening? I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that's a common experience, but I think that there is something there is there there is a there is a, t- a strange type of gift here. Um, and I've noticed this. I mean, I'm, I'm I have two small children, so life is extremely complicated with them at home the whole time and so on so I I, I don't uh, I also feel relatively privileged in that I have a salary um, as someone who worked in university so there are various things that I've suddenly started to look around and notice what I have got and I've noticed the things that I'm grateful for I mean just the fact that the weather has improved recently and stuff like this you sort of um, and uh, in a way there's a sort of I think uh, people notice things the sorts of things that you never used to notice you, you start to notice and and to put this back into a sort of I suppose the uh, language of, of political economy and critical theory in this sense there's there's been a sort of there's a kind of an exchange value holiday is is how you might describe it in the sense that we are all we've all been sort of thrown to some extent not entirely because of course some people are having to work um sorry, I mean, I mean mo- most people have to work but i mean some people are, are, are simply not able to, to to work in the same in the, in the same way um so it's not as if people have sort of somehow kind of been kind of suddenly you know the market has been sort of suspended but nevertheless there is a sudden uh, re-appreciation of use values uh, over exchange values in the sense that you sort of have to find other ways of, of, of using your time with children you have to find other ways of uh, other things to do I mean the announcement in Britain that happened last night from Boris Johnson uh, which said that people were allowed to go outside to do exercise once a day well, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, gr- grateful that 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 rule has 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 been created in the sense that I'm still able to actually kind of go go for a run uh, and and down the canal or whatever. Um, so there's a sort of, I suppose, it's closer maybe towards to to what a a, a kind of ecological campaigns and uh, green politics has has sought over the years, which is to try and. Uh, get people to recognize that they don't need more stuff and they don't need to be constantly paying for things in order to flourish now flourishing is very hard when you can't even go outdoors very much but nevertheless i think there is a sort of um you know i don't know exactly how political this will 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 become and it may be and it would be a great shame if all of this was forgotten and i actually sometimes think about writing some of this stuff down actually just the things that i've suddenly sort of trying to kind of you know suddenly realizing that i that i i'm I'm glad that such and such is happening or you know of course and it takes of course it's made us all much more dependent on streaming services and platforms and so on and and that i think is given that many of those platforms were already too powerful that i think ultimately is is bad news but i think it could um people are are finding different ways of using some of those platforms in ways that is is socially productive 
Going back to the 2008 financial crisis, I mean, I, I suppose one very striking difference today from, from that time is the extent to which the left has, in recent years, built up a, a network of organisations and, and policy think tanks that have been pushing policy ideas that seem highly relevant to this crisis um, in a way that there wasn't back in 2008. Things like the, the Green New Deal, universal basic income, universal basic services, uh, including um, free super fast broadband and, and, and the four-day Weak, and those all seem like policies that are, you know, eminently relevant to the situation we're in. Um, I mean, is that perhaps one reason for uh, a, a degree of optimism that, that it, it, you know, we might be in a situation where we can, um, the left might be able to impose some of those demands upon uh, the government? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that that um, greater uh, ambition turns out it came at a, at a at a good time in in relation to this crisis, and I think that what's clearly changed, certainly at the moment. I mean, I, I don't want to make very strong predictions about what things will be like in two years' time, but it's it won't be possible to, to describe certain things as unrealistic in the future because nobody could have envisaged the Treasury paying for 80% of the, of, of the private sector wage bill um, uh, or, for that matter, people being confined to their houses and the schools closed and all that sort of thing. So I think that the whole idea of what's realistic and unrealistic has been kind of thrown up into the air. Um, and I think that one just has to hope that not just on amongst those who identify as being on the left, but more broadly across society, that, um, I mean, you know, there was that famous moment where Theresa May was denounced during the 2017 election, where she said to a nurse who hadn't had a, a, a pay rise for, for years, I'm afraid there's no magic money tree. And that was seen as a, as a, as a, as a complete sort of disconnect between... I suppose, the kind of affective uh, and, and, and economic politics that was at large in society and the, the, the sort of view from the centre. And I think that um, some of that will be expressed far more strongly. I think that uh, the the idea that, that, that people who are actually making society uh, possible at all should be treated as, uh, should be devalued to the extent that I think they have been by the by the labour market of the last and and the and, and the welfare state of the of the past thirty or forty years or so, uh, I think you know th- there is an opportunity to really push back against that, and I think that the the whole question of realism uh, won't you know it won't carry the same carry the same water at least at least for a time. I mean, I suppose that you know the, these moments of opportunity inevitably close again. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune Magazine. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.